What is it about going on a cruise, being in the lap of luxury and ease, having our every need attended to that is so enchanting? And what about the advent of next day shipping from Amazon and others that has made us so very impatient? I can't wait 48 hours for that thing. What does that mean for us as a culture? What does this mean for us and our happiness? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book. And today's guest is one of the five people who most influenced my life. So, you know, no pressure here. Dr. Shannon Minifee is the CEO of Box of Crayons, which is the learning and development company that I founded some 20 years ago. She is a brilliant leader strategic thinker, someone I trust deeply and really admire without reservation. I mean, she's leading this company that I started. It's like handing over a child to somebody. And Shannon is the best person for exactly that. We actually met talking books. She was working behind the bar of my favorite local pizzeria. I sat at the bar with my wife when we were, we were eating pizza. We got to talking and pretty quickly we just started geeking out on books. So, of course, having her come as a guest on this podcast, I was keen to see who she would choose. She reads really broadly. I was like, okay, who's it going to be? And, you know, in some ways it was predictable. Shannon chose not lightly. She chose the author she wrote her PhD dissertation on, David Foster Wallace. Now, Infinite Jest is Wallace's best-known book. It's some 1,096 pages long, with the final 100 or so of those pages being just footnotes. So this is literally and metaphorically a weighty book. It's not really a book you carry around with you, unless you're Shannon Minifee. You don't leave the house if you're reading Infinite Jest. I actually, I solved that problem. I don't have the book next to me, but I solved that problem by tearing it into thirds and then separating I know the people who don't like tearing books are going to hate me for that, but I tore it into thirds and then also tore off the footnotes and then I carried around the relevant sections. Getting through those thousand plus pages turned out to be something of a portal for Shannon. Shannon was about to begin a graduate degree when she learned that the person who would have been her supervisor passed away. And of course that's crushing emotionally, but Shannon also had to change her own plans about her topic for her master's degree. And actually, it was about this time that David Foster Wallace committed suicide. I went into one of their offices and was like, I have this idea about how Alcoholics Anonymous works in Infinite Jest. And immediately they were like, you need to write about this because you've already read the book. And that's half the battle because everyone's going to go and read Wallace now because he's died. And the book's 1,100 pages. So start writing. And that's how I ended up making a huge change in direction. And then um, I, I went on to do a doctorate. So I ended up writing about Wallace for over a decade. Now, Infinite Jest isn't the Wallace book that Shannon chose for today's episode. Instead, she chose an essay collection. And she's reading from the first, the, the centerpiece essay. Wallace was sent to write a review of a seven-day cruise experience. And, you know, that might sound like a jaunt, but it was never going to be that for Wallace. He takes this seemingly simple assignment and he turns it into a very long, the essay is over 100 pages long and takes hours to read, um, but often humorous and also dark reflection on what he ends up seeing as an insatiable and infantile need for gratification in American culture. And in an attempt to, to deny the reality of our own um, mortality. 
So from what is supposed to be a fun, relaxing assignment on a cruise ship to reflecting on mortality. That's the journey Shannon took with Wallace. So let's get to it. Here's Dr. Shannon Minifee reading two pages from, and I love the title of this uh, essay, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again by David Foster Wallace. Celebrity Cruise Line's seven-night cruise brochure uses the second-person pronoun throughout. This is extremely appropriate, because in the brochure's scenarios, the seven-night cruise experience is being not described, but evoked. The brochure's real seduction is not an invitation to fantasize, but rather a construction of the fantasy itself. This is advertising, but with a queerly authoritarian twist. In regular adult market ads, attractive people are shown having a near illegally good time in some scenario surrounding a product, and you're meant to fantasize that you can project yourself into the ad's perfect world via purchase of that product. In regular advertising, where your adult agency and freedom of choice have to be flattered, the purchase is prerequisite to the fantasy. It's a fantasy that's being sold, not any literal projection into the ad's world. There's no sense of any real kind of actual promise being made. This is what makes conventional adult advertisements fundamentally coy. Contrast this coyness with the force of the seven-night cruise brochure's ads, the near imperative use of the second person, the specificity of detail that extends to what you will say. You will say, I couldn't agree more, and let's do it all. In the cruise brochure's ads, you're excused from doing the work of constructing the fantasy. The ads do it for you. The ads, therefore, don't flatter your adult agency or even ignore it. They supplant it. And this authoritarian, near-parental type of advertising makes a very special sort of promise, a diabolically seductive promise that's actually kind of honest because it's a promise that the luxury cruise itself is all about honoring. The promise is not that you can experience great pleasure, but that you will, that they'll make certain of it that they'll micromanage every iota of every pleasure option so that not even the dreadful corrosive action of your adult consciousness and agency and dread can fuck up your fun. Your troublesome capacities for choice, error, regret, dissatisfaction, and despair will be removed from the equation. The ads promise that you will be able, finally for once, truly to relax and have a good time because you will have no choice but to have a good time. And there's a footnote. Your pleasure, several Megaline slogans go, is our business. What in a regular ad would be a double entendre is here a triple entendre. And the tertiary connotation is, mind your own bloody business and let us professionals worry about your pleasure for Christ's sake. And it's far from incidental. Return to the main text. I'm now 33 years old and it feels like much time has passed and is passing faster and faster every day. Day to day, I have to make all sorts of choices about what is good and important and fun and then I have to live with the forfeiture of all the other options those choices foreclose. And I'm starting to see how as time gains momentum, my choices will narrow and their foreclosures multiply exponentially until I arrive at some point on some branch of all life's sumptuous branching complexity at which I'm finally locked in and stuck on one path and time speeds me through stages of stasis and atrophy and decay until I go down for the third time, all struggle for naught, drowned by time. It's dreadful. But since it's my own choices that'll lock me in, it seems unavoidable. If I want to be any kind of grown-up, I have to make choices and regret foreclosures and try to live with them. Not so on the lush and spotless MV Nader. 
On a seven-night cruise luxury cruise, I pay for the privilege of handing over to trained professionals responsibility not just for my experience, but for my interpretation of that experience, i.e. my pleasure. My pleasure is for seven nights and 6.5 days wisely and efficiently managed, just as promised in the cruise line's advertising, nay, just as somehow already accomplished in the ads with their second-person imperatives, which make them not promises, but predictions. Aboard the Nader, just as ringingly foretold in the brochure's climactic page 23, I get to do, in gold writing, something you haven't done in a long, long time. Absolutely nothing. How long has it been since you did absolutely nothing? I know exactly how long it's been for me. I know how long it's been since I had every need met choicelessly from someplace outside me without my having to ask or even acknowledge that I needed. And that time I was floating too. And the fluid was salty and warm, but not too. And if I was conscious at all, I'm sure I felt dreadless and was having a really good time and would have sent postcards to everyone wishing they were here. That's fantastic, Shannon. Beautifully read. Thank you. And such a powerful piece. He's fun. Um, I'm guessing that the thing that brought you to that piece was not because you love carnival cruises on big boats. It was something else. So what's the what's the idea that kind of blew your head off and, and changed your life that, that was contained in that passage for you? Yeah, I'll talk about the idea one second. The the choosing of the piece, I was like, I want to choose a piece that that ticks some Wallace boxes. Yeah. So it's got to have some footnotes because it's um like lots of critics, including my friend Stephen Guy, have written about the way in which Wallace is footnoting changed the blogosphere, has changed a lot of online writing. Like he's responsible for this voice he left in our heads has has changed a lot of that kind of writing. So I wanted something that right. caught that um, and the sort of maximalism. Um, he also has a tendency to sort of get into minute detail of the subculture, uh, which right. which wasn't totally in that passage, but um, you see it a little bit in his, like the carnival seven night cruise, luxury cruise, like the, re the repetition, which he usually says sick if it's been if it's a repetition that he's uh he's doing and he's like calling out um the the grammatical error so yeah, I wanted sick to as in s-i-c not s-i-c-k you got it it's yeah exactly so like, this is how they wrote it not how i wrote this it, is yeah, how, it you got it yeah yeah exactly um so that kind of redundancy um so i, I wanted to choose something that that sort of captured that kind of that, like they just captured those sort of aspects of his writing um from top to bottom. So the ideas. Right. So the idea in here that uh, I was interested in when I wrote it and that I remained interested in for years and I remain interested in now is it's basically the idea of like temporal finitude. <laughs> if we know if we know we're going to die and we do, <laughs> how does how does that affect how we choose to live? And if we are, and if we're denying death and everything we do is about denying facing that reality, how does that shape the way we spend our time and the way that we live? And, um, and the, how those questions or that topic leads to this idea, which he gets at in, in this passage a bit and, and even more so by the end of the very long essay, um, this idea of this paradox of liberating constraint. So what it means to be an adult. Right. Is to have is to have constraints and restraint, and not just to uh, to infantilely want and satisfy our needs as though that is the the only reality. Yeah, 
trying to think about where I want to where I want to press into there because you know it's like yeah they're big the ideas <laughs> exactly it's like the what what is existence <laughs> what is a life well lived I, I guess I was going to ask you this because I, I wasn't expecting your answer where where in part you start off by going you know this talks about our time on this planet is short <laughs> what are you going to do with that. And I didn't read that so much. I didn't hear that so much in the passage. Where, where does that, where do you, where do you find that in the, in the passage or is it just more generally in his writing? No, well, it's, it's, it's more pervasive in the entire essay, but the idea is like the idea that's highlighted in this particular passage is, is that the cruise ship is selling a lie. Right. And the lie that it's selling you is that you by having every um, desire and need met, it, like in in a way that that's described, your troublesome capacities for choice, error, regret, dissatisfaction, will somehow allow us to reach that like level of of like not nirvana, but like it will allow us to overcome yeah. dread of death. So that all of this activity on the cruise ship, all of this like frenetic activity, is about not paying attention to like the bad part of, of being alive, which is that like without any doubt at all, I'm, I'm going to die. And so that the, the part of what, of what the lie is of the cruise ship is that taking away that choice and taking away that mm. confrontation makes us feel better instead of worse. Because what Wallace feels is worse for, for right. um, denying that reality instead of embracing it. And of course, the cruise ship isn't just the cruise ship. It, it, it feels like no, the cruise life. ship is. This, <laughs> this is life. This is the this is the the world that's being constructed around us, which is to remove agency and to flatter us yeah. and to infantilize us, to make yeah. us feel better. But in fact, to give up our agency, which will make us feel worse. Exactly. Yeah. How do you how do you bring that idea into the way you live your life, Shannon? <laughs> because there are there are forces against us that are keen for us not to actually kind of grasp our agency. I'm curious to know how it shows up in actually a, a lived life. I'm not a disciple of Wallace's, so not taking this and putting it putting it into immediate action um, in that way. Yeah. But I think what do I? I think that there is, um, at the time that I was reading this, I was, mm. uh, I was unmarried. I was headed to live stateside. I didn't know what I might do or where I might go. I had a lot of friends that were just like traveling around the world, you know, like getting pass out drunk in Thailand on, you know, just doing their like big travel thing. Yeah. And a lot of friends who were like, for whom there was a lure, an allure about just like chasing the next fun thing and not having yeah. a lot of commitments as though like being committed to things starts to put like starts to put this box around you and be- makes and becomes constitutive of our identity in ways that people don't like they want that kind of they want that freedom yeah. and i think that the older I get. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird when you start more, saying that, isn't it? Now that I'm an old person. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I, it's the ways in that's, it's the commitments we have and the ways in which we are beholden to mm. people that gives meaning. 
rather than the absence of that stuff. And I know he's not quite, he's not going there. Now we're over here on how to, how to Shannon yeah. jump, jump off and think about this. Exactly. But I, I do think that, um, there are tr- like you, like, like he says, like he does say in that, in that passage, that part of being an adult is making decisions, which foreclose yeah. other options. Yeah. Um, it's also, he's also brilliantly, um, describing what a good strategy is, which is I can't do all the things I'm going to commit to these things and they're right. going to lead me down these, these paths and those will be good paths or there'll be paths, but I can't be everywhere at once. Um, so I, so I think actually in my, in my work, I think about that as well, that there is something about, sure. um, being a strategic and being adult in the way that he describes that, mm-hmm. that resonates. I mean, you're the CEO of Box of Crayons and you know, I know that part of the commitment at Box of Crayons is we try and live internally in our own culture, what we try and teach to our corporate clients, which is around uh, curiosity at the heart of the work that we do, but that's in part mm-hmm. to drive an ability to make better choices. I'm mm-hmm. wondering how you help bring this commitment to, you know, and I think the language you use at Box of Crayons is adult to adult relationships, like clarity and ownership of the choices that you make how do you help bring that into a culture i mean you role model it in part but how do you hold a culture to that standard because it's a high standard yeah like internally at box of crayons it's a it's intention with another one of our values around generosity Mm. so the so the be generous um value is all about assuming positive intent right and the you know cultivate adult to adult relationships uh value that you just talked about is about for us radical candor so we use kim scott's work about it's not mean it's clear um in order to right. have those kind of tough conversations um and help each other own and be accountable for like for, for decisions you make and actions that we that we take and how do you, I guess I'm going to say maybe calm people down around the, the tension, meaning the kind of the conflict that arises in those moments? Because it's one thing to go, look, Rattle Candor is great. And, you know, you read Kim's, uh, Kim Scott's book on that and you're like, yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to do that. <laughs> but what that means is having to be present with anger and sadness and frustration and confusion and lostness and that's just on your side of the table who knows what's happening over on the other side of the table um i'm, I'm wondering yeah. how you create a, a a place that feels safe enough for that to work because one of the criticisms i've heard of kim's scott's work is it works really well in some cultures but it doesn't actually work in a culture where it's overly hierarchical or fear-based or whatever it might be yeah so it's a uh... It's a work in progress, but I think that the, yeah, the thing that's needed is pretty strong psychological safety or, and trust um, yeah. among the team. So yeah, if you trust that the people are, are interrogating the, the question and so being curious about the question and being curious about what happened, not looking to place blame, mm. then, then I think that um, being, being radically candid and being direct with each other um, and like precise in our speech when we're being direct is, uh, 
works. It works well, but you need to build up that kind of trust. So if someone's brand new to the organization, um, you need, yeah, you need some time to, to build relationship in order to be that way. But what you said about, um, oh, I thought of something else, Michael about, oh yeah, about tension, about things being in tension with one another and being hard. Yeah. The hardness, the hardness is the thing that matters, right? Like going back to Wallace's text, right? right? Like right. if it's easy, like lying, getting burnt on the, you know, 15th <laughs> deck of the, of the Nader. Ordering a 15th um, margarita on the 15th deck of the world. Yeah. Exactly. 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 I mean, go and read the whole hundred page essay. What, what ends have, up happening, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was more, I was more speaking to your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So you might remember that what ends up happening is that he, he ends up, he boards the ship being like, Oh me, I've never even been on the ocean. Cause he hasn't. And then by the end, he, he sees how the, the expectation of getting spoiled and of things being easy only primes him to right. expect and want easier things. Right. And and so that like, and, and, you know, you, you can think about like a lot of smaller examples, even just like how convenient things have become, right? Right. So it's like, now that Amazon can get me something here tomorrow, it's like nothing is fast enough for me, right? Like right. we just get more and more and more impatient. And he has this really funny interlude near the end where they park at one of their various destinations next to like a way fancier luxury cruise ship. <laughs> and he, he says that he imagines doing a uh, William T. Volman-ish move of dump of jumping over the deck in like a amazing journalistic feat to the, to right. the other boat. But he, but what he's doing is he's like, well, it seems way better over there. I bet their mints are bigger. I bet yeah. that the food is better. I bet everything's yeah. better over there. And so what it starts to do is make you resent where you are and so mm. part part of being adult and part of not always chasing some maybe better thing that's been sold to me is like i'm content right here right and i know that's what being so, what's being sold to me over there is somehow better is is a lie yeah. <laughs> um and in fact the tensions thing like things that are that are easy are like aren't real and they're not they're not worth it like the reason that the values are hard and have tension is because they are they require deliberation and intention to perform yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean it comes back to so many classical philosophies from stoicism onwards which is around stay present to what truly makes you happy what truly satisfies you um stay present yeah. to the hard choices and live a better life. And it feels paradoxical to say it like that. But, you know, as you talk about this, Shannon, I think about some of the psychological literature. And uh, there's one term, uh, this idea of a satisficer. I can't remember what the other term is called, but mm. a satisficer okay. is a person who um, is content, makes a choice and sits in contentment with that choice. And mm -hmm. the way I think about it, and the way it's changed my life, it's a really small way, but it helps, is um, when you go to a restaurant and you open a menu, as soon as you see a dish that you go, that sounds good enough, you close the menu and go, that's what I'm going to have. Rather than keeping caught yeah. in agonies around, I don't know, should it be the fish or should it be the vegetarian curry or should it be something else? Um, and there's just great literature that says you are happier with that contentment in your choices rather than that yeah but i could have a, a even more expensive bottle of wine or i could have a cigar with the expensive bottle of wine watching the sunset on the even bigger cruise ship um and chasing that pleasure principle yep. um is an inf uh, is a finite game that you can only lose absolutely 
Yeah, and I yeah, I've learned I learned that from you. We've dined together enough times that I I remember you doing that, and I've I've stolen that. I think you also <laughs> talked about, and this is you know apropos of the Wallace piece too, in terms of choice. It's yeah. possible to be like just being overwhelmed by we, we, we both don't want overwhelmed choice and we don't want choice taken away from us so that we're just like, yeah. you know, in utero, it, like, like how he describes at the end. Um, I, I think you also mentioned like Obama, like only wore like just wears white shirts. Like, I'm not going to think about it. I'm just going to wear a white shirt every day. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I've got, a, I've got, I've got gray suits, white shirts and blue ties. And that's, that's his, that's so it. he never has to think about his clothing choice. I'm not prepared yeah. to go down that path. I like my clothing choice. That brings me pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah that's okay. Oh, but also on the pleasure, like happy life thing, there's, um, and because you brought up curiosity, there's uh, Todd Cashton, who I think mm. is at George Mason and writes about curiosity. Um, ta- uh, like his argument basically is that the key to a good life is not happiness, but curiosity. Yeah, I love that. And yeah. Todd's going to be one of the uh, guests on this podcast. So he'll be uh, coming Very on soon, cool. I hope. So I'm excited about that. Shannon, how about, you know, part of what Wallace says really explicitly in the in the passage you read out, which is like, and I'm paraphrasing, you'll probably have the right notes, but it's like, when you make a choice, <laughs> you're being an adult and it comes with attendant grief and loss and sadness and guilt and anxiety about making the choice because you are committing to something and in doing that and committing to something, you are eliminating other options. You're not able to keep your options open when you make a choice that's right and people are probably listening to that and going yeah that's true and also in the the corporate world where you and i spend a lot of time most organizations are paralyzed by an inability to make choices because it's like let's it's it's keep saying yes let's not say no Mm -hmm. i'm wondering how where you find the discipline to make brave choices, because that's one of the things that you do as a CEO at Box of Crayons is you are courageous enough to go, we're committing to this. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you build that muscle within you and how do you help others around you become better at that as well? Yeah, we're exercising that muscle. Um, but yeah, right. that, that's exactly, that's exactly the uh, passage I was saying. Like he's basically describing good strategy, right? That A good strategy is if you're saying yes to this, what are you saying no to? Um, We like the, for us, I mean, I just had earlier today, a phone call with one of my colleagues about like, what are our, what are still going to be our guidelines for the next few years for us? Like what are our guardrails we're thinking about? And basically what we mean by that is what are the things we're putting on the table and what are the things that we're taking off today? And things change, but yeah. right now, how are we gonna? Where are we gonna put resource and energy? Um, just like it's just in the practice of doing it. Like I think we like we have the conversation, but we need to have. You, you've got to have the rigor to um, just just keep asking the question of like, is that is that stri- is that still strategic? And like coming back to those principles of what the strategy is, we practice um, integrated decision making, which is an idea that I took from Aaron Dignan's book brave new work which is a wonderful book and i love aaron's yeah. work as well um i know you and i actually for for listeners Aaron and i shannon and i are going to be on aaron's podcast sometime in the future talking about how we manage the transition from me being ceo to shannon being ceo so that's going to be a nice juicy conversation but yeah. can you explain that idea from dignan's work yeah the idea from dignan's work is um 
is based in advice and consent. So for an integrated decision um, to be made, you identify roles. So not your your job description or your contract, but it, like what is the expertise you bring? What's the thing, like the call that you own in your role? Right. And we identify that. So we all did our work on that. And then what we did was create like this pithy little chart that's like laminatable and refer refer toable. And it's and it says um, which kinds of decisions require advice, which can be followed or, or taken or not, and which require consent and from which parties. And it means that when we have um, our like the people who lead our company at these critical junctures of decision making, where a question like, oh, I might chase this thing, which is going to take me out on this branch, right? Um, yeah. Or not comes to pass. They are like, okay, it's this kind of decision. So this kind of expertise advice is required and this consent is required. And so it creates the moment for the conversation, which brings us back to, to the strategy. Um, I mean, yeah. like we're, I, I speak aspirationally, but this is what we're trying to do. Yeah. Your your question also makes me think of um, uh, just about you know, like the beauty of things that can be done by making decisions. And so here I go to like not corporate examples, but I think of like Robert Frost, um, right. who hated open form, and his famous thing he said about open form is that writing poetry in open form was like playing tennis with the net down. And by open form, you mean without kind of any kind of. Uh formal structure to a poem like a sonnet has a formal structure uh 16 line or 14 lines and a rhyme scheme that it. you're supposed to follow and a haiku has a formal structure exactly but open form is just like just write down whatever words you want in whatever order you want and if there's many lines as you want yeah exactly yeah and and so but like this idea that um you can create a more beautiful thing for giving yourself boundaries within which that thing has to be created as opposed to anything it all goes. I mean, I love Walt Whitman. And so there's all kinds of open form that breaks that rule. But it's an it's an interesting idea of like, uh, it, for me, that's like the liberating constraint. That's that's a like beautiful way of thinking about that, that argument of like, yeah. how much beauty can you create by giving yourself parameters you need to play within? Um, and like, in some ways, like the tighter the stanzaic requirement, the harder that work gets. And so right. when you when you pull it off, it's it's really beautiful. Anyway, he wrote in sonnets, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> Fantastic. I love that. I mean, I'm such a believer in uh, building in limitations to where you can play and how you can play. Um, uh, but it's it is difficult to have that. I mean, sometimes they're imposed on you. You know, so when people, it's the classic scene that that I used to use when I way back in the distant past when I kind of taught creativity and innovation is the scene from the Apollo 16 movie or 13 or 18, one of the, the, the famous Apollo movie where they're trying okay. to fix the, fix the spaceship and the, they come in and they dump a bunch of stuff on the table and they go, we've got a round air filter and we need to build a square air filter. And this is all you've got to do it with. Cause this is all that's up in this, on the little spaceship and mm -hmm. there's race against time. It's all tension, but, and they kind of make it happen. But that is the perfect, contained example of be creative and here are the parameters part of the structure i think of discipline yeah. of choice making that you're pointing to is um first of all the discipline of setting up structures in the first place guardrails as you as you put it but also there's what happens on the other side of the decision making which is once you've made the commitment you have then imposed the limitations in which you now need to be creative and flourish and 
and do your best to kind of achieve the goal that you set yourself. And that's powerful yeah. and exciting and beautiful as well. I love that you use the word beautiful, which is like getting stuff done, important stuff done that you've been brave enough and courageous enough to commit to is, is a thrilling experience. Yeah. And we, I, I think in those terms, because another one of our values is to pursue elegance and there is something just kind of like, there's a beauty to that kind of elegance. There's an aesthetic quality to, uh, to things sort of coming in, into falling into place. So how do you, um, this is a kind of more personal question. Um, and it's a tricky one. It's one I wrestle with as well, which is, you know, we, we see Wallace's cruise ship and we know that that speaks for a worldwide where capitalism, capital C is kind of doing many of those things that a cruise ship is trying to do, which is like remove choice, make us feel good about ourselves. If you want a, a popular version of this, it's Wally from Pixar, same sort of thing that humans that blasted off from Earth there. You know, at Boxy Crayons, we work with these corporations um, who are doing this. I'm wondering how you square your insight around this, which is around this is often what it takes to live a good life. And in some ways it's around rebelling against the comfort and the and the ease that the world is, is trying to sell to us um, with mm -hmm. the fact that we, in some ways, are working with those corporations that are doing just that. Um, well, first, while we're name dropping other authors, Kelly Smart, their book, Con The Conscious Creative, is a lot more eloquent on this on this topic because they write at length about it. <laughs> they do. Um, and I it's, a, and it's a wonderful practical book as well. I can really recommend uh, yeah. their book. Yeah. It's awesome. The I think that there is the commitment comes back to the individual. So for me, part of what we're doing at Box of Crayons is helping people feel less alienated from their labor. Mm. And so if we can help organizations create cultures in which people um, feel like they have agency and they have um, choice and they, they can affect change and they are more engaged in their work, um, and less, and less alienated from that, then that, that's the beautiful outcome. Yeah. Um, and you know, smart describes this as, uh, is sort of like transforming from the inside out. And Michael, you and I have talked about a sort of Trojan horse of like, we, we go in and we, we bring in these programs and we help transform the culture mm. that is, that's committed to, to individuals flourishing. And that has the amazing effect as well of helping those businesses succeed. So that's how I, that's how I think about it. I mean, I had a lot of years of being like, oh, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to be an academic and I won't have to do anything to do with the corporate world. And like, that was probably mostly immature, but there's all kinds of things that private industry can do to make a difference. Yeah. Um, and, and, and has done Stacey Abrams. I recently saw on a webinar, I was talking about how, um, she's like, poverty is a, is a moral problem. Yeah. And I think that it's something that like private industry can help solve. Capitalism can help solve can help solve problems with the right leadership. That's right. So it's not all big companies are not bad. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're, we're almost done. One of the questions that you and I have introduced in the way that we work together, because, you know, one of the things that we are really conscious of in terms of our relationship is power. 
because I'm the founder of Box of Crayons and that casts a long shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, you're the CEO and founders are notorious for <laughs> making life for their CEOs difficult because they're fiddly and they're kind of controlling and their founders are just weird anyway. Um, and one of the questions that we introduced uh, in terms of us maintaining the the clarity and rigor of our relationship, which we both value and we both want to protect, uh, is the question, what needs to be said that hasn't been said? Yeah, I mean, I think the what needs to be said that hasn't been said or the thing that that maybe I'll, I'll say is that um, I paused for a moment, speaking of power, about choosing... Um, who, whose voice do I want to amplify on a podcast? Mm. Not like, a, like, you know, not like millions of people are going to listen to you on this podcast, but it whose might. voice I want to amplify. That it might. Yes, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm not people. saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and I've read a lot of books, um, but the question was which book uh, in some way changed my life. And because David yeah. Foster Wallace sent me on this path, it, it mattered. But it also matters um, that Wallace, to, to say and to know that Wallace is a, problematic writer to say the least. Um, and that, uh, even like his biography, um, DT Max's biography, uh, barely touches on a lot of, um, the abuse that he's, uh, responsible for and that Mary Carr and others have since brought to light. Um, and so there's, um, I don't want, I don't want to cancel, uh, Wallace for the greatness uh, of his words uh, in a lot of other places and the ideas. Um, and I wanted, but, and, it, and it's worth mentioning that he's, he's somebody whose abuse of power needs to be considered as well. Claire Hayes Brady is a David Foster Wallace scholar who's really, who writes really well about some of Wallace's um, misuse of power and yeah, just like poor characterization of women and, and black people and people of color. Shannon said, if we know we're going to die, and we do know that, how does that affect how we choose to live? Well, that, that, that is the big question, isn't it? It's the heart of the life journey, the spiritual journey. What's a good life? Part of what I strive for myself and a big part of what I admire in Shannon is a willingness to step out to the edge of your comfort, your competence, your experience to walk the boundaries between what you know and who you are now and who you might yet become. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't mind going on a cruise ship. I mean, maybe post pandemic, but you know, a little luxury and a little TLC is delightful. It's nourishing, but the grand adventure of life, well, you know, that's going to require getting off the sun lounger and seeking opportunities that are thrilling and important and daunting. You can hear Shannon on other podcasts. My favorite is Dave Stachowiak's Coaching for Leaders. It's a wonderful episode. And you can find out more about Box of Crayons and how we move organizations from advice-driven to curiosity-led at boxofcrayons.com. And thanks for listening to Two Pages with MBS. I'm hoping you're enjoying these conversations. I certainly am loving them. So honestly, you're secondary to my delight in this podcast. But... 
if you're geeking out as well and you're liking this diverse range of different authors and speakers and thinkers and activists, I hope you'll consider joining our free community. It's called the Duke Humphreys. It's named after the coolest library at Oxford University, the library where they kept the rarest and most extraordinary books. You can find transcripts and unreleased episodes and more at uh, the Duke Humphreys, my Duke Humphreys, and you'll find that at mbs.works podcast. The podcast grows best by word of mouth. So if it could be your word of mouth, that would be amazing. If you've enjoyed this conversation with Shannon, her reflections on mortality, her reflections on what it takes to live a good life, well, then perhaps you can think of somebody in your world who might like to hear that episode as well. More subscribers means I have more chances of landing pretty amazing guests, and that's what I'm, I'm hungry for. And when I have amazing guests, you get to benefit from that as well. And of course, if you're willing to leave a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app, well, that's just marvelous. Thank you. You're awesome, and you're doing great. <laughs>